Hello, good morning. Welcome to all the people joining us online and to Half Moon and Latham, and of course to, to you here in uh, Latham and Saratoga, I think I meant to say. A friend of mine um, shared a story recently of a professor he had in graduate school. And the professor started the course the first day of class with a question to the students. And the question was this, how long have you been alive? Students thought, strange question. So nobody answered. So the professor called on a young man in the front row, you, young man, how long have you been alive? And the student said, 24 years. He said, no, 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 I did not ask how long your heart has been pumping blood. I asked how long you've been alive, you know, with excitement in your life. And then he shared a story of when he was a young boy on a field trip visiting the world, or not the World Trade Center, the Empire State Building in Manhattan. And he said, I was filled with fear of heights. I, I didn't like heights. And so when the elevator went to the top floor, you know, the observation deck floor, he said he was really scared. When the elevator doors opened, he could barely make his way out of the elevator. He said, when I finally got off, I inched my way so slowly to the railing on the observation floor. And he looked down. And he said, my heart was racing so fast, I couldn't believe how high we were. He said, I couldn't even make out what was on the ground level. And then he looked out at the horizon. And he said, I took in this magnificent, glorious, amazing sky, skyline of Manhattan. He said, I was thrilled. I was elated. It was as if time stood still. He said, that was over 50 years ago, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. And he said, students, I will take that moment in time into eternity with me. Wow. And then he looked back at the student, and he asked, how long have you been alive with excitement like that? And the student responded, well, when you put it like that, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour. And then the professor said th these words. It's a quote. You may be familiar with it. He said, in the end, it is not the years in your life that count. It's the life in your years. And that's what I want to talk about today. How can we as Christians make the most of our lives? Did you know that Jesus promised you and me a full life? Look at what he said in John 10.10. 10. He said these words, I have come that you would have life to the full. Your translation may say the abundant life. Now understand that has nothing to do with material wealth or possessions this side of eternity, and it doesn't guarantee necessarily a long life. Now there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what the full life is. I want you to think of it this way. The full life is living at a higher level in obedience to God's will for your life and for mine. I like how one commentary writer put it of this verse as to what does the full life mean. He said this, and I quote, it means that we can experience the fullness of God's love, grace, and mercy in Christ. It means that we can find joy in the midst of trials, peace in the middle of chaos, and hope in the middle of despair. Regardless of our circumstances, we have joy, we have peace, we have hope. And it means we can walk in freedom from sin and shame and guilt and live, and I want to anchor to this last verse today, and live a life of purpose. See, I think this 
this question really gets to the heart of what does it mean to live a full life? What are we, what are we after? I think this question gets to the heart of it. What are we saved for? What are you saved for? What am I saved for in Christ? You know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 answers that question. He said, you are saved to do some things. You are saved to do some good things, some exciting things for the kingdom of God. In fact, in that passage, he said that God has planned things for you and I to do for the kingdom before we were even born. Wow. See, the Christian life is not meant to be a dull, mundane, boring existence. The full life is a life with meaning and purpose and significance and, yes, excitement. And I love how Peter, in 1 Peter 1.8, put it. He said this, the outflow of a life fully lived in Christ is joy, inexpressible, glorious joy. Now, how many people want a full life in Christ? Okay. Okay, not all of you. No, I think most of you put your hands up. <laughs> now, it's important to understand the context of John 10 when Jesus says these words. You see, Jesus here is giving a parable. It's the parable of the good shepherd. And in this parable, Jesus is the shepherd and we are the sheep. And what's the job of a shepherd? It's to guide and to protect the sheep. You say, from what? to protect them from themselves because sheep can wander and get themselves into all sorts of trouble. They can get lost. They can get attacked by predators. And just like sheep, we too can wander from the good shepherd. It happens when we put our faith and trust in ourselves rather than in him and we can find ourselves in a destination or in a situation that neither he nor we intended for us to be. I mean, all you have to do is look around in society and you see the struggle and the anxiety, the addictions, the loneliness, the emptiness, the sadness, it's pervasive in society. But if we're honest, all we have to do is look in the mirror. Because every one of us, if we're honest, have wandered from the good shepherd a time or two because no one is perfect this side of eternity. And when we do, we find ourselves saying, I'll speak for myself, I find myself saying things like this. I, I, I could have done that differently. Or can I, can, I, can I get a do-over? Is anybody with me or am I all alone? Or I should have done that or I shouldn't have done that, right? And the good shepherd, he's looking at you and he's looking at me and he's saying, don't wander from me. I wanna guide you to the full life. I wanna protect you from a life of regret. But we will learn in this passage that he's not only protecting us from ourselves, he is protecting the sheep from outside influences that are out to get them. See, most of us know this passage when Jesus says, I have come to give life and life to the full or the abundant life. But what we don't realize, it's just half the verse. Look at the full verse with me. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give life and life to the full. Now, the thief specifically here that he's referring to are false teachers, the Pharisees. In fact, that's who he's speaking this parable to. But that phrase, the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, is a phrase in the Bible that captures the evil forces in this world. You see, um, we need to understand the backdrop of the Bible is war. 
okay? It's a battle between good and evil, and the battle is for our hearts. It's for our commitment. And Paul says this. He says in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, look at it with me, says this. Your enemy, he's real, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to pull you and me away from the protection of the good shepherd. He will use all kinds of schemes. I mean, he he will try to tempt you. He knows our weaknesses. And he'll whisper things like, come on, do it, do it, do it, do it. Nobody's gonna know, just do it. Or he may appeal to our self-centered thoughts and thinking and say things like, man, you deserve so much better than what your spouse is giving you. He may attack you with shame and condemnation and say things like, man, there is no way that God loves you. Are you kidding me? Given the things you have done and the places you have been, no way, no how. But we gotta remember something about the enemy, and the Bible clearly tells us this in John 8, 44, he is a liar. He is the father of lies. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to pull us away from the guidance and the protection of the good shepherd because he doesn't want us living a full, rich, purpose-driven, joy-filled life. Number one reason why he doesn't want that is because he doesn't want you looking so good as a Christian. He, He doesn't want you being a person of grace, He doesn't want you being a person of love. He doesn't want you being a person who's passionate about your God-given purpose because it would be honoring to the one you say you follow, and he definitely doesn't want that for our lives, honoring God with our lives, but Jesus does. He said, let your light shine so that people will see the good that you're doing as I'm empowering you and give glory to God. He wants you to be light in darkness, He wants you to be distinctive. He wants you to be attractive so that when people see you, they see him. But the enemy, he wants our lives falling apart. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give life and life to the full. And that's a promise that we can count on. If, you see, it's, a, it's conditional. If we live a life of faith and trust in him. See, if we approach Christianity as a decision of faith and that's it, you know, I get my ticket punched for heaven and I shelve my faith, we'll never experience the full life because it takes a life of faith and trust in him. Faith is so important. It's one of the reasons I believe Jesus would often create circumstances and situations to test the disciples' faith. You know what he was trying to do? Bolster their faith in him. And in the midst of these situations and circumstances, it's as if he's looking them in the eye and saying, do you believe me? Do you really trust me? If you do, show me. Remember the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? It's an incredible miracle. It's in all the Gospels. And you may remember the disciples were getting a bit nervous for the people. 
all these people have come to hear Jesus preach and to witness these incredible things that he would do, and he would always attract the crowds. But they were at it long into the day. In fact, the scripture tells us it's late into the day. There's a lot of them, and they're in a remote area, and they're worried these people are gonna starve to death. And so they interrupt Jesus. I, I don't know how they would do this. I mean, he's preaching. They're probably like interrupting him. Hey, Jesus, do you think you can cut your sermon short? These people gotta go. Dismiss them so they can get something to eat. And I love what Jesus says in response. I think he's saying it with a smirk. Matthew 14, 16, look at it with me. He replies, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they've got to be thinking, what? How are we going to do that? It's an impossible ask. You remember what they did? They scurried and they got the little boy's lunches, two fish and five little loaves of bread. And they said, this is all we have. And then, and then Jesus says, bring it to me. And they do. And he blesses the food. He breaks the bread. He hands it back to the disciples and says, distribute it to the people. Now, I do not believe when Jesus blessed the food and broke the bread that it just exploded into a golden corral of buffets. <laughs> and the reason I don't think that is because I think the gospel writers would have captured that if it happened. Rather, Matthew, Mark, Luke say he blessed it, he broke the bread, he handed it back, and he said, distribute it. And they're thinking, this makes no sense. We cannot feed them with this. And they're right. They can't. But he can. And they're left with a decision. Am I going to trust him or not? It's a question of faith. Immediately after this miracle, Jesus tells the disciples to go by boat to the other side of the lake, He's staying back, dismisses the people. He goes and prays by the mountainside. Late in the evening, a storm comes through. And the disciples are not able to make any progress on their journey. They're about midway to the other side of the lake. So it's late at night, on stormy waters, Jesus walks to them. You remember the story. He walks to them on water. As he approaches them, they're full of fear, thinking it's a ghost. Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. Do you remember what Peter said after that? He said, if it's you, tell me to get out of the boat and I'll come and walk on water to you. And Jesus said, great, get out of the boat. Not only you, but all of the, all of the disciples, get out of the boat and come walk to me. And they're left with a decision. Do I trust him or not? Now listen, it's a question of faith. And Jesus would often create these kinds of circumstances and situations to test the disciples' faith. What was he doing? He was trying to bolster their faith in him. It's as if he was looking them in the eyes. And he's looking you and me in the eyes today, and he's asking this question. Do you really believe me? Do you trust me? If you do, Show me, show me. The 11th chapter of Hebrews, a wonderful chapter, it's called The Heroes of the Faith. And it summarizes much of the Old Testament heroes of the faith. And it has a rhythm like this, by faith Noah, by faith Moses, by faith Rahab, by faith Joshua, and on and on it goes. 
and it highlights these incredible things they did as they trusted in the power and in the promises of God in their particular circumstances. Do you know why that passage of scripture is there? It is there to encourage you and to encourage me to persevere in our faith in Christ. Why? Because it takes a life of faith and trust in him to experience the full life God has for you and for me. In fact, that kind of faith is the pathway to life. Now, the parable of the good shepherd gives us insight as to that which needs to happen before we will ever live a life of faith and trust in Christ like that. And there's two things about the sheep that are very important. Number one, he knows them and they know him. Look at verse three and four with me. He, the good shepherd, calls his own sheep by name. Now that's intimacy. He knows you by name in Christ. Now get this, and his sheep follow him. That's what faith does. That's what people of faith do. They follow him. They obey because faith doesn't just talk. Faith walks, okay? And so these are people that are living a life of faith and trust in him. Why? Because, okay, what's needed before that happens? Because they know his voice. It is a picture of deep personal intimacy with God. It's a deep relationship with God. You see, if there's no relationship, there's no trust, right? And we get that in our own personal lives. Hey, it's hard to trust somebody you don't know anything about, right? And when we have a relationship with somebody, we, we base our trust on the experiences we have with them. If they're trustworthy, we extend it. If they're not, we don't. And that makes sense. But it is not how God treats you and me because he trusts us even when we're not trustworthy. Let me, let me say it this way. Let me say it this way. He automatically extends trust to you and to me and it's not based on anything we've done. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But he freely gives it to those who accept it. He just freely gives it. You know what that's called? Amazing grace. It's God's amazing grace. Did you know, listen, you don't earn God's love and grace. You don't earn his acceptance. There's, there's nothing you could do in your own good works and efforts to earn his acceptance of us because all our good works apart from Christ are like filthy rags. We're sinners and we fall short of God's perfect standards. We are saved not by works, we're saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8. So that no one can boast. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And it's his righteousness that has been given to you and been given to me. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but he freely gives it to those who put their faith and trust in him. Listen, when God looks at you and looks at me, he doesn't see our flaws. He sees the perfect one, his son, Jesus. We don't deserve it. 
We don't earn. It's God's amazing grace. And may that grace capture your heart and move you closer to him because our God's a good God. And he knows you intimately. And he knows me intimately. As this passage says, he knows your name. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the ugly. And in spite of it all, he loves you and he trusts you in Christ. Now, I'm hoping somebody is asking themselves, what does he trust me with? Because he's not following us. We follow him. But he trusts us with something very significant. Do you know what it is? His name. He trusts us with his name. We are children of the living God. Galatians 3.16, we are his ambassadors in this world, 2 Corinthians 5.20. He gives us an incredible identity, and it's not based on what we have done. It's based on what he has done and who we are in him. But he trusts us even more than just with his name. He trusts us with himself. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ lives in every one of our hearts if we're genuine followers of him. It's incredible. You ever heard this statement, and I know you have, it's very popular. Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. See, Jesus didn't just come to rescue us from our sin nature, he came to relate to us. And he desires a deep, personal, intimate relationship with every one of us. The question is this, do we desire an intimate relationship with him? That is the question that is at the heart of whether or not we will experience the full life God has in store for us. This is how it flows, okay? No relationship, no voice. You won't hear the voice of God. It will be drowned out by the world, by our sinful nature, and by the enemy. They will pull us away from God. No relationship, we won't hear him. If we don't hear him, we don't follow. We don't obey him. If we don't obey him, we don't experience him and the work he wants to do in and through our lives. And if we don't experience him, we don't experience the good, exciting things he wants to do in and through our lives, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let me summarize it this way. No relationship, no life. And that's not my words. That's what Jesus tells us in John 15, 5. And you're familiar with this passage. He said, I am the vine, you, Christian, are the branches. When you remain in me and I in you, intimate relationship, you will bear what? Fruit. That's being fully alive. The branch has fruit on it. And then you can obviously reference Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is marked, marking a life that is fully alive. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Apart from me, no relationship, we're just a dead branch. No fruit producing life. So here's the question. How do we deepen our relationship with him? And by the way, no matter where you are in your journey to him, we all can deepen our relationship to him because no one's perfect this side of eternity. Look at James 4, 7, 8. 
Now, I like the flow of this because it, it follows the flow of John 10.10. 10. You remember John 10.10, 10, there's bad and then there's good. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy bad, but I've come to give life and life to the full good. Check this out. James 4, 7, 8. Resist the devil and he will flee from you and come near to God and he will come near to you. When the enemy is tempting you, resist him. When he's appealing to our self-centered thinking, resist him. It's a real battle that's going on. He's trying to pull us away from the good shepherd. He wants our lives in shambles. Resist him. And when he's attacking you and me with shame and condemnation, there is no, you listen to me, you've got to remember something. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Always remember that. And so when you start feeling shame and condemnation, you pull out the word of God. Put the armor of God on, Ephesians 6, and throw the word back at him. Resist him. And when you do, the passage promises us he's going to leave you alone. Why? Because he's bored with you. He'll go find someone else and draw near to God, and he draws near to you. James 4.8 is a beautiful picture of grace. Draw near to God, he draws near to you. Don't matter how far you have wandered from him. Just draw near. Just, just make a step towards him. He draws near to you. I don't have time to get into it. Luke 15, the prodigal son parable. Many of you know it. Anytime I see James 4.8, my mind immediately goes to the prodigal son parable of the prodigal son. The father is God. The son wanders far away from the good shepherd, does some bad things, realizes it, and when he realizes it and humbles himself, he wants to come back to the father. What does the father do in that parable? He runs to him. He runs to him. And that's grace. His grace is so sufficient. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you, and we can do it in an instant. In an instant. In his book, Experiencing God, a great read. If you've never read that book, I highly recommend it. Dr. Blackaby reminds us as Christians of three things if you want to deepen your relationship to God. And I'm going to have them on the screens very quickly. I don't have time to get into this in depth. But these are things that you're already familiar with, things to remember if you want to deepen your relationship with God. Number one, remember God is at work today. What is he working to do? To redeem a lost world. Jesus says in John 5, 17, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Wow. Number two, he invites you and me to become involved in his work. That's pretty exciting because he's working in your family. He is working in your family workplace. He's working in your schools. He's working in your community. He's working in your spheres of influence, and he wants to use you. He's inviting us into this. And number three, remember, we don't serve a dead God. We serve a risen God, and he speaks to you by the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through his word, through prayer, through our circumstances, through other godly men and women in our lives. If I could only unpack all that, I don't have the time, but this is what I want you to hear. God is working. God is inviting. God is speaking. He's working. He's inviting. He's speaking. He's working, inviting, and speaking. And when you draw near to God like that, I'm going to warn you, 
you will bump up against a tension. It's a good tension because he's trying to change us into his image. It's a good tension. And there may be a sin that you need to repent of. Tension. It may be him calling you to serve in some capacity and, and you're gonna be left with a decision. Am I gonna trust him or not? When Jesus handed the, the food back to the disciples after he blessed it, they bumped up against the tension. Am I gonna trust him? When he called them out of the boat, they bumped up against the tension. Am I gonna trust him? Think of the heroes of the faith. Moses, go to the most powerful man in all of the world at the time, Pharaoh of Egypt, and demand, let my people go. Tension. Rahab, hide the two Jewish spies and possibly face death. Tension. Hey, Joshua, I know you're a military warrior and you have a certain strategy for battle, but I want you to walk around the walls of Jericho with the people of Israel, not once, not twice, but seven times over seven days, and then blow the horn, and the walls are going to come tumbling down. Really? Tension. Noah, Build the ark, even though it's never rained up to this point in history. Tension. And they had a decision to make. Am I going to trust him or not? And that tension becomes real when we draw near to God, but it's a good tension. It's a good tension. But here's the exciting thing. When we are in deep, intimate, personal relationship with God, we're going to be much more inclined to trust him and to walk through the tension and when we do, we experience God in our lives. It's no longer just in the head, it's now in the heart. And life takes on a whole new meaning with purpose and significance and absolutely with excitement. I mean, when the disciples trusted Jesus and participated in the feeding of thousands, that incredible miracle. I mean, imagine how elated they must have been. When Peter, who, by the way, is the only one that got out of the boat, when he got out of the boat and walked on water, he experienced what no one did prior to our sins. He walked on water, and I could just see him saying, look at me, wow. I mean, it didn't last. He sunk very shortly thereafter. But Jesus grabbed him. Jesus grabbed him. Oh, if I could have only seen the face of Joshua when the walls came tumbling down. Wow. Imagine what Noah must have thought when the rain actually came and the floods rose and he rescued not only his family, all of humanity because of his faith. And if I could have only been at the scene when Moses lifted the rod and the Red Sea parted, and the people of Israel walked on dry land, freed from Egyptian bondage. Oh, my, 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 my. The Christian life is not meant to be dull and boring. But I need you to remember one thing. God's faithfulness is always on the other side of our faith walk, never before. But if we don't walk through the tension, we'll never experience him and therefore we'll never experience the full life. Now, let me end with a word of encouragement and then a brief story at the end. A word of encouragement 
Um, I know you can hear things like this and think of, well, the disciples were with Jesus, you know. But remember, they didn't get it very often. And Jesus often had to say to the disciples, oh, thee of little faith. Okay, we're never going to get this perfect, this side of eternity. And the heroes of the faith, sometimes we can put them on pedestals. They are superhuman. They're not. They're, they're just people, okay? And they're not perfect people. They're, they're, they have some flaws, okay? You have a liar in there. You have a prostitute in there. You have a murderer in there and so forth. But they trusted in the promises and the power of God and his faithfulness kicked in in their circumstances, okay? That's number one, encourage, encouraging word. Number two, you do not need big faith. It's not about the amount of faith you have. It's about the object of your faith, and the object is Jesus, and his faithfulness will carry the day. That's why Jesus would say, hey, with tiny mustard seed size faith, you can do big things, because it's not about the amount of faith you have. It's who you're putting your faith in, and his faithfulness will kick in, but you need some. Why? Because it shows him that you trust him with your life. And then his faithfulness kicks in. You know, we just talked about the parting of the Red Sea. And I can't help but think there were two schools of camp, if you will, among the Israelites. I believe there were some, as they're walking on this dry sea floor, and to the right, they see this massive wall of water, and to the left, this massive wall of water, and they're walking with confidence probably chanting, Pharaoh in your armies, you're no match to our God. You know, real confident, just marching. But I believe there were others who were very careful as to where they were walking as they see this massive wall of water on both sides of them. And as they're shaking in their boots, they're saying, we're gonna die. We're gonna die but they all made it to the other end. Why? Because they walked. They all acted. They all trusted, some with big faith and some with mustard seed size faith. But God's faithfulness kicked in and they all made it to the other end. Tony Campolo is an author. Um, he's a professor He's the chairman of the sociology department of Eastern University, has been for decades. I'm not sure if he's still in that role today. He shared a story of a time when he was in his office and his mother called him to tell him Mrs. Kirkpatrick had passed away. She was a lovely woman, a friend of the family. Uh, she lived in the neighborhood where, where Tony grew up as a boy. And the mother asked him, would you go to the funeral? It's tomorrow. And he said, of course, I'll be there to pay your respects. So the next day, he goes to the funeral hall, and he's a bit taken back because there's only an elderly woman in the funeral hall, and Miss Kirkpatrick had a lot of family and friends. So at any event, he was a little surprised by that, but he walked in, and he sat next to that woman. When he finally went up to the casket and saw an elderly man, he knew. Wrong funeral. So he walks back to the woman. He's going to tell her, I'm leaving. I'm at the wrong funeral. Before he could say a word, he sits next to her and she grabs his hand and said, you were a friend of my husband's, weren't you? And he didn't say a word. And then finally he said, yeah. And that's when the tension kicked in. Not so much because he lied, but because his mother was going to kill him if he wasn't at Mrs. Kirkpatrick's funeral. It wouldn't look good. 
but he, but he heard the spirit of, of God in him. Stay with her. Stay with her. Stay with her. So he stayed. Nobody else showed up to the funeral, just the two of them. They drove together to the burial site. They paid their respects. They put a rose on the casket. And then as Tony's driving her back to the church, he said to her, I never knew your husband, he confessed. He told her the story. And then she said these words to him through tears. You will never know how much you being with me meant to me today. And he said, I immediately came to mind. What came to mind was Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. And he said, my heart was filled with joy. Joy, inexpressible, glorious joy. Jesus said, I have come to give life to the full. And that is a promise we can count on if we're willing to walk through the tension. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you so much for your grace that gives us an opportunity to draw near to you in Christ. And Father, I pray for everyone who hears my voice, wherever they are in their journey to you, I pray that your grace would just capture their hearts and move them closer to you through Christ Jesus. And Father, may we all have a renewed mind on what a full life is all about in Christ. And may we, Father God, empowered by the Holy Spirit who's indwelling us, may we be transformed more and more into your likeness so that we can be a light in darkness, so that we can be distinctive in this world, attractive in this world, so that when people see us, they see you, and we can redeem their souls by pointing them to you. Father, thank you so much for how good you have been to us. I pray a blessing over everyone here today and over the body of Grace Fellowship Church. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.